Today's guest is Vino Duraisamy. On top of being a developer advocate at Snowflake, Vino is a prolific writer and content creator for all things data engineering. While she started her career as a software engineer, the project early on ignited her passion for data, ultimately leading to a master's in machine learning, research in explainable AI, and roles at Apple, Traverse, and more. Keep listening to learn about the latest trends in data engineering, exciting releases from Snowflake, and how to evaluate companies as a data engineer. Vino, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to dive into your background. I'm happy to chat. Excited to be here too. So Vino, the very first question I have for you is, how would you describe your work to a five-year-old? It's an interesting question you ask because I do have a five-year-old niece. And every time I go there, I'm like constantly trying to explain her what I do and everything. For months, I just put the word software engineer to her and she's like, what does an engineer do and everything? And now we've reached the phase where I'm telling her, Okay, so now I work with data, like, you know, trying to narrow it down a little bit further. So now we have a toy shop story where it's like, you know, remember you go to a toy shop and you want the specific Mickey and Minnie toy. And she also likes a bunch of dinosaurs and spaceships. I'm like, imagine going into this shop. What if they run out of all such toys, right? You will be sad if the babies will start to cry if they don't find their favorite toys in there. The toy shop owner, the shopkeeper needs to know how many toys to keep of each. So when the babies come to buy, he will have enough toys for everybody. Like what I do is something similar to that. You know, you collect data saying, oh my God, babies like Mickey and Minnie so much. So I need to keep more of Mickey and Minnie toys or more of spaceship toys. And, you know, doing such things will make sure the babies don't go back home crying. And that's very similar to what I do at work too. And like, that's where we are at. And I feel like that's. Probably the abstraction, the question I can probably, you know, build around what I do. But yeah, that's pretty much it. I like how you introduced urgency and scarcity in there to like drive fear into niece. She is obsessed with, you know, the Mickey and Minnie toys. And every week I go, there's a new name and there's an imaginary friend and everything. And I also tried the other way, you know, what if this imaginary friend can talk to you and trying to build these AI assistants into toys and making up a story with it. But I don't think I got anywhere with it. But there's more reasons. Looking at your career, you've done so many cool things in the data engineering world. Just take a step back. What sparked your interest in the field? I was working as a software engineer at the time. And I was with NetApp. And I was an entry-level person, right? I was just two years into my career, right out of my college. And there was an analytics project that came up. And like nobody in my team were, you know, excited to take that up because that was something on top of what they were doing already. And I don't think software engineers are excited about building Tableau dashboards on one sprint. And I being this into cutlet you come from usually when you're out of school, you're like, oh my God, I want to do this. I want to do that. And you sign up for everything. And I did sign up for that. And that kind of changed everything for me. I mean, we were working on like customer support data as to, you know, what are the customer issues that are coming in and then categorizing into different product modules and presenting it to the product team saying, hey, we see a lot of customer issues from these specific modules. And do you want to prioritize hardening of these modules before we build new features and things like that for the product team? At that time, I just took it up because, you know, why not kind of an attitude. But then when I actually presented it, when I got the opportunity to present, I was presenting to the senior executives and like the senior product leaders in the company, which I would otherwise have no reach to. Like, why would I randomly go present to like literally kips that are like four levels above me and five above me, right? That's kind of when it like really struck me that, oh my God, so there are certain projects that would have this kind of visibility and significance to the company and to everybody else. And it is like 
super cool to work on that. And, you know, that's kind of, I would say, like the starting point for my data journey was I'm like, okay, so data is important. And this is what gets a lot of attention from like literally everyone. At that time, I was also like trying to learn Python on the side. So that all came together like very nicely for me. And I think a couple of years down the line, I decided to go for my master's, focus on machine learning, data science and stuff. And that kind of took off from there. But the initial starting point was just a random analytics project that I just said yes. It's the first dashboard that changes the rest of your life. You would not expect at all for an entry-level person to be presenting to such things. And like seeing the value they got out of just a simple dashboard, I'm like, wow, okay, this is super interesting. In that presentation to the executive team for that project, do you remember any of the questions you were asked? Any things you still think about? For me, it was but just a two-week effort for me, it's just, oh, really? Is it that valuable? Like, looking at their reception to the presentation was like a big shocker to me. Because, like, as a software engineer, right, you're working on sprint after sprint, trying to release new features, and it's a long process. By the time you see that your feature is popular, what is the adoption for specific features like? It's almost at least five, six months for you to see the impact of what you did, right? And, like, this random two weeks of work is getting, okay, interesting. Hopefully it led to a nice bonus check that year. You mentioned that led to you getting your master's eventually. And so during your time at ASU, I saw that you spent some time as a, an explainable AI researcher. Could you share a bit about what led you to that and how it might have influenced your future work? At ASU, I was working on a bunch of projects, a bunch of them being like, you know, spanning different industries. One was on the supply chain optimization front. I was basically exploring the applications of different data tools that we were learning and everything was application oriented and it's like, oh, how do we take this and put it to supply chain? How do we take this and put it into a language model? And this one, when I just looked at it and I was like, I have never really done a research per se. And when you're learning, like formally all these machine learning methods as well, when you go from these traditional methods like logistic regression and tree-based methods to CNN, Suddenly, everything starts to become fuzzy. You don't fully understand how these CNNs work, how these neurons work. But like, it was difficult for me to form a mental model of how does a CNN work? How does this fully connected layer work? Because everything else is super clear for you to see. For a linear regression, you just have a straight up algebraic equation and you solve it and you get it. It's super straightforward. But when you're thinking about CNNs and the advanced deep learning modules, it became a bit challenging for me to understand how they do. And then when I came across this opportunity where one of my professors who were teaching us machine learning was working on this explainable AI problem, I was like, I would love to like sign me up and where do I sign up kind of thing. And that actually helped me understand in a CNN model, for example, how do these different neurons get activated and what are the challenges basically when you're working with a fuzzy model, like a non-deterministic CNN model like everything. And we explore like different methods to understand these neural activations. For example, when you feed an image to a CNN model, how does it actually classify if it is a dog or a cat? Like we used these most popular visualization tools like saliency maps. That will help you understand, for example, when there is an image and the model has classified this image as a cat, how did it classify? So in that image pixels, is there an importance of, see, you look at the eyes and you'll be like, okay, so this makes you think that this could be a cat. And like saliency maps actually helps you to understand the importance of pixels in an image and tell you, because of these different pixels here, I think this is an 
a cat image or a dog image. And exploring that really helped me understand, like more than solving a research problem or anything, it helped me form a better understanding of how a model really works and everything. And then like we tried to do this reverse of it, which is also using another visualization technique called activation maximization, which is you keep feeding different images to these neurons to see which neurons get these maximally activated values for what images. And can you actually say something? Let's say a cat versus dog classifier, CNN model, right? Can I identify specific set of neurons in the fully connected layer and say, these neurons are classifying the eyes. They are only looking at the eyes. And can we build these feature maps for every feature in your image? So all this together will then actually make a reasonable classification. Just peeking into the black box and trying to understand like what actually happens. It was very exciting to actually go through that research. And also like more than it being a research problem, at later stages of my career, I really understood how you need to understand how a model works to actually deploy in a real world situation. So all of this like, came really handy much later for me when I actually started with the industry. Is that a space you still follow now? There's such importance, especially with AI Act coming out soon and explainability seems to be such a critical part of the regulatory scope there too. This whole AI safety, responsible AI, explainable AI and these peripheral fields along with just these AI stuff was going to take a lot of importance in the coming years for sure. Because when you put together the data privacy laws with LLMs and the AI regulation acts, it's just like there is tons of work that needs to be done in the space like that is around AI, these, you know. In addition to your core data engineering work, you've also over the years been a prolific writer as well, just talking about your journey, creating tutorials and content for people. I'm wondering, where do you draw inspiration from your posts? When I started writing, really, for me, it was more like I just needed to share my experiences with other folks coming into the US. Like if you go to my medium and see the first few blogs, it was about how to identify the right university, how to identify the right degree, and how do you prepare for your master's before you even come here? And like, you know, mostly about trying to help the fellow folk because I did not do a lot of preparations the right way and tried to like figure things out on the way. And it started out like that. And I think one of my biggest, even more successful blogs of today was setting up a Hadoop cluster. Like it was the big data engineering course and we were using one of the cloud solutions for the course and everything. And I was like, I have one of my mentors tell me that whichever tool you work, if you don't fully understand how they work, it's always going to be hard for you to use them. And I was like, so you just click a button and I get a Hadoop cluster that works for me. But then Hadoop cluster work internally, how is it all connected? And you would never understand that if you don't actually install these different things within your system yourself. I did that and I was like, oh my God, why do I have to do that? But then I'm like, well, I anyway did it. I might as well put this out for folks who are trying to do that as well because it might come handy for someone else. I just put together my notes and everything. If I remember correctly, I was like struggling with this entire setup for more than a week just to install a couple of things. It, it was insane. And then I started putting that blog out and I got in like superhuman response. Like I think even as today, after all the blogs and everything, that is the most popular blog. I can only imagine how hard it was probably even till today. And for me, that became more of an inspiration because, oh my God, okay, I went through this. I just shared my thought process and like journey in some way. And 
I see that it helps a lot of people and that kind of keeps you going. It's also funny because part of my reason why I wanted to write was because one of my peers in my master's program, she started writing Medium blogs and I was not even familiar with Medium at the time. And like partly thanks to her that I started out on Medium and started writing about it. I used to be a Quora person and I think I had tons of things that, that were going on on Quora for a while. But then I feel Medium is a little more organized and also it has a lot of these technical audience, not as much as Quora. It kind of helped for the topics that I wrote. It was very relevant to write on Medium. Throughout all the content that you've produced there, has there been any piece that's been most fun to write? Was it the one you just mentioned? The most fun, it was about one of their data engineer roadmaps, to be honest. It's a big story. So when I started out, I was trying to focus, specialize in machine learning and everything, right? So I focused on this like computer vision models and also exploring a bit on the language models. And I was working on both of them side by side. Explainably, I focused on the object detection. And then I also had a capstone project focused on working with building name entity recognition with natural language models. So I was just trying to explore both of them simultaneously. And coming from the software engineering background, one thing that always stood out in my head was that full-stack software engineering was quite the thing. If the full-stack ML or full-stack data is going to become the next big thing too, and I need to prepare myself for that. And so I consciously took roles as data engineer and then ML engineer, and even did a bit of ML ops, trying to build this full-stack ML engineering kind of an experience. And once I had that, and I'm like, all right, I'm ready. So industry, when are we going to become the next big thing in the industry, guys? But then funnily, the industry went in a whole different direction. And now there was like data analyst and business analyst, data scientist, supplier scientist, machine learning engineer. Like <laughs> it just like went in an entirely different direction. So instead of a full stack role, now we have hundred different roles with overlapping titles and responsibilities. And it doesn't look like it would unify anytime soon at least. So for me, I'm like, all right, anyway, we're not going to do this full stack role any soon. But I might as well put together my journey of, okay, so when I want to consciously get data engineering experience, how did I do that? Or what are the tools that you need to learn? Or when you want to get into ML engineering, what are the tools that I needed to learn? What was the process as well? So one day I just thought, I might as well treat them as separate entities and just write content around both of them. It took me probably like less than half an hour to just write a data engineering roadmap because I was at the time a data and ML engineer at Apple and I saw a tons of my college juniors and my friends who wanted to get into the space asking me and I'm like instead of typing 10 whatsapp messages separately I would just put together a blog and then send it all to them and that was the most fun to write because we were just like pulling together resources from different places to just build a roadmap and then share it with my closest circle not necessarily for everyone out there but then that also they ended up being one of the most useful blogs for people out there so sure that's one too. You found the personal pain and documented your own. That sounds awesome. In terms of looking at that progression of roles right now, you're at Snowflake and you're uh, working as a developer advocate. Could you explain to people who might not be familiar with that term, what a developer advocate does? The developer advocate is more of a mix of roles. I wouldn't call it just like one specific thing. And I would say there are like three main pillars to developer advocacy. One is, I would say, product. Second is content and the third is community. And in the product space, what I mean by that is you constantly are in touch with the developers in conferences and meetups and these different forums, Reddit, Slack, or like Stack Overflow, like all the different forums. And then 
take the insights back to the product team about how is the user experience for this new feature or what new features are folks expecting from us and everything around the product and in a very subtle way, helping the product team prioritize the features and helping them with their roadmap and everything. And then comes the content pillar, which I was doing already. So it kind of helped augment that as well. It's about creating content. It could be in so many different forms, writing a simple blog post as to how to do this, an entire tutorial end-to-end about how to build a specific data project, or even like dating the documentation, creating YouTube videos about different features of the product and company and everything. So all sorts of content creation, right? And the third is community, which is like constantly listening to the community about what do they think about the product and not even just about the product per se, right? Just keep a pulse on what's going on in the community, what's going on in the industry, where are people heading to, what are the new things that are happening and just keep a pulse on what's going on in the industry and the community per se. So it's like three different aspects of it. I guess the closest I could make up a title that would make more sense for people will be developer marketing. I guess that's easy for folks to digest at this time in like one go. With so many different tools and platforms out there, especially now with the recent AI boom this past year with so many companies trying to create and nurture open source communities there, are there any mistakes that you see some of these companies making in terms of how to genuinely create and manage a community, things you would advise against? The biggest, when it comes to these different tools, for me, I feel personally that one of the things that companies could be doing better is when you think about data or AI or ML, there's just tons of tools every day that's coming up. And every company has their own Slack channel or Discord server where they expect you to join and be part of the conversations that are going. It makes sense for the company to have a community space for their users to come hang out. But when you think about it from a developer's point of view, just because I'm playing with some tool today doesn't mean I want to be part of another Slack. Imagine if I have 10 tools in my ML stack, do you expect me to be super active in all the 10 Slack channels or 10 Discord servers? It's a big thing if I'm super responsive to my actual work Slack. Forget about another hundred. It's impossible to expect from a developer, right? Especially in times like these where we have like tons of new tools and features bombarding every day, every week. So I feel putting a lot of emphasis on their own first party community channels, that's probably not a great expectation to have for sure. And the other being, I feel the biggest takeaway for me, which I had personally also was that to reach developers where they are. For example, I am constantly on the Reddit data sharing thread, like subreddit, trying to like, just see what's going on in the engineering space, what's everybody else doing? What do people talk about? And just what is top of mind for everyone? And I think just being there where usually developers hang out and instead of expecting them to come to you is probably going to be a biggest differentiator. And I think, yeah, for sure. And another thing is I personally like absolutely love Reddit because it enables folks to give you like unabashed, honest opinions about anything. Thanks to the power of anonymity, it's going to be in one way extremes too, you know, if you don't want to, but hey, you wanted honesty, you're going to get it if it's in favor for you or not. But it's like super interesting because when you are talking about a new product, new feature, new company, it definitely, you know, pays to get honest opinions of your users or consumers. So that's one of my favorite tools too. I mean, Discord is anonymous too, but for some reason, I've never been able to like the Discord UI. Just, I don't know. Along the lines of community then, Snowflake just had its big annual developer event recently. What are some of the announcements coming out of Build that you were most excited about? 
So we had Build last week and most of the demos and the outputs that we saw from Build were basically from our summit announcements. So whatever we announced at the summit, six months down the line, Build was an opportunity for us to actually put our features in public preview or actually show the working demo of the features and everything. So the developers or the builders can actually get an idea of what we promised earlier in the year. And for me, I was personally presenting a couple of topics around data engineering, one around iceberg tables, and the other is what are the new features in data engineering that have come up, dynamic file access, external access, and like latest Python support and more. But the biggest highlight for me was the LLM camp, where we actually got hands-on experience trying to fine-tune the Llama 7B model with Mopar container services, with GPU compute and everything. It was the most fun like if i have to call out like one highlight of the entire build summit it would be that i would highly encourage folks to check it out too but unfortunately it won't be a hands-on lab anymore but you can still go watch the demo and it is super fun along those lines then looking at ml ops there are lots of companies right now that talk about evolving that into llm ops i'm wondering between those two are there any key data engineering differences there or is it largely marketing there are some overlaps for sure between MLOps and LLM ops, right? The way we look at it, if you are already doing MLOps, LLM ops is probably like a specialization of it because LLMs are just another type of models that you're operationalizing as part of your whatever workflow that you have. In terms of the infrastructure, it's just that LLMs need GPU compute and just the scale of the you know LLMs. It's not just like a few MB model that you're going to put it in a job lib file and then use it for inference. It's kind of scaled up version of normal classical ML models. But for me, when we think about the LLM ops, there's like tons of new challenges. I guess we don't even have solutions for some of them, right? After you deploy the model in production, there is this concept of you have to keep monitor and observe what's going on with the data drift and like the model drift because the model performance does degrade over time. And there are also concepts like retraining your ML model over a certain period of time because say you're building a recommendation, like a marketing recommendation, a product recommendation from the marketing team. And if a user says their personal data needs to be deleted from your system, you delete the data. And then in the next retraining of the model, the deleted user's data is not going to be part of it. So it's all code. But when it comes to LLM, again, because of the nature of LLMs themselves, and since we cannot, so what happens? You trained your LLM with the user's data, and then tomorrow the user wants to delete the data. I'm like, yeah, but how are we going to do that within the LLM? How are you going to remove the user's data from an LLM that's already trained, which is completely fuzzy and it's impossible to make any, you know, it changes to the model itself. So there are like some challenges that are not resolved, like at the research level. It's not even an ops problem. It's more like an LLM research problem. I guess very similar with evaluation too. There are no one set of metrics. I mean, we do have Helm benchmark by Stanford as the unified evaluation framework that we all use. But then the evaluation is still like an ongoing problem, like it's not fully solved research problem. But then how am I going to deploy my LLM models in production if the evaluation is kind of still not fully done? So there are like tons of challenges that come with you know, operationalizing LLMs. And it's just going to be a lot of interesting days, you know, ahead of us to just see how that's going to be. But the infrastructure level, I feel 
it's very similar to MLOps, but then at the conceptual and the regulatory level, there's just going to be tons of new things that we need to kind of realign our system. With all the innovation and changes in what those new things are, looking ahead, are there any aspects of AI tool and platform development that you're following particularly closely? Like all of the LLM ones, specifically around the responsible AI stuff, because I'm really curious to see how that is going to evolve as the field. I know we do have these regulations and everything come up, but still, say, for example, like we all were familiar with BERT by Google uh, for a while now, right? I think some 2017, 2018 was the BERT, right? And then BERT was capable of reading an entire book of 500, 600 pages and comprehend and like make sense of it. And that was a huge thing at that time. And for OpenAI to come up with a new model and just release it to everyone in like literally just release it out to everybody kind of makes you question. I'm like, okay, so there was this company who also had very similar or like very advanced ML models or AI models, but they were very cautious about what they release it out to the world. But then there are also now because of the disruption, thanks to OpenAI, now there's just new models that are coming out every day. What is okay to put it out to everybody and what is not okay to put it out for everybody's access and this whole you know, conversation about regulation and the safety of AI models is just going to be super interesting. But it's also something that I'm constantly thinking about. Because for me, to be working in a company sitting in San Francisco, it's easy to think about disruption and like the advancement that comes with the AI models. But sometimes I look back and I'm like, but how is this going to affect my parents? Because I read just a random news story about some old lady somewhere in Phoenix getting a call that was, of course, the voice generated from one of these, you know, generated. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, those parents, I mean, they're not going to be familiar with all the fancy stuff that we do at work. And they're going to think it's easy to scam people like them. So I'm like constantly thinking about how can we make sure it is safe for everyone, really. So that's constantly on top of my mind for sure. The very last question I have for you is, let's say you're just graduating school right now and you've been studying data engineering. There's so many different ways to evolve that career track and lots of cool companies to be at. What advice would you give to a new data engineer as they're evaluating where to go? What type of things should they be looking for to know that they'll have a good experience as a data engineer at a company? I think it should be like a two-pronged approach when they think about getting into data engineering, for example. One is to get the foundations right, whatever it is. Say, forget about the tools and the stacks because there's going to be a new company every week that's going to solve one specific niche data engineering problem. But then foundationally, are you good with functional programming? Can you write Python or SQL or even color code or just get yourself familiar with the foundations and be super strong in that? But then the second aspect is also keeping a, a tab on what's going on in the industry. For example, today, as a data engineer, I'm only building data pipelines. And let's say if you are familiar, right? Like we started off just mm -hmm. traditional SQL, and then we went on to this NoSQL databases, document DBs, and where, like they were quite a thing. And then there was graph databases and whatnot. And as a data engineering person, depending on what kind of data your, your company is working with, you will need to get familiar with these different tools as you go. But now with LLMs, the vector databases, right? You would have to get yourself familiar with vector databases too, because it will not be too long before these companies will have their own LLM training pipeline. And as a data engineer, it will be on you to create these embeddings and like create this training data for your AI models. So you will have to keep 
a tab on the industry, what's going on, how is it relevant to me, how does it affect me, and constantly kind of upskill from there. So I guess the second part is on this solid foundation that you've built, how can you build these extra skills that will kind of set you apart? I guess all of us can treat ourselves as our own startups. Like you could be a one-person startup because if you run a company, you cannot just be like, oh, you know what? I'm making so much money today. I have good customer base. I'm just going to run with it for the rest of my life. It's not possible, right? <laughs> You're watching the industry. Where is it going? And am I getting obsolete? Am I getting irrelevant? How can I pivot myself into what's going on today? I guess it's very similar to us, even as persons too. That's a perfect analogy. Well, Vino, this has been a super fun chat. Thank you for sharing about your background, your vision there. Excited to see what you're cooking up next. Thanks. Awesome. Yep. Thanks for having me. It's always fun looking back and think through all those days and see where we are today. This podcast is brought to you by H10. Part about advanced technology that never changes is the need for the right people to design, build, and manage it. H10 offers just that with an on-demand talent and management service that covers all aspects of engineering, program management, and AI. Trusted by over 400 companies, including half of the Fortune 10, H10 is here to help lighten your load and make you the hero. 